0: Welcome to Nova Morganum, a podcast series from Uppsala University, produced live by researchers with an interest in interdisciplinary action and novel methods. In this podcast, you will meet guests who work in very diverse ways with academic knowledge production, and often with expertise in its usefulness, from blue sky research to applied science, academic entrepreneurship, or policy development. Today is our sixth episode with Åsa Fosch, Professor in Theoretical Philosophy at Stockholm University and member of the Swedish Academy. Adamant that knowledge is the basic foundation for a healthy democracy, she has engaged in cross-disciplinary research and written several popular science books on the topic. With the current state of European insecurity and an ongoing war in Ukraine, what novel methods do we need to sustain democracy? Welcome, Åsa. Thank you. How are you today?
1: I'm pretty good.
0: Sunny yeah. day. Yes, <laughs> and it's nice to see you here in the office because during COVID we have quite some uh, of these conversations, I would assume, but it's so much better to meet someone in person. So. Yes, everything yeah. is better in person. Yeah, yeah. So... I was a bit curious, since this podcast is called Novum Organum, Novel Methods, uh, from Francis Bacon and his uh, writings in 1620. Um, do you have any relation to this Novum Organum uh,
1: uh, not in a very serious way. I haven't, I mean, I know philosophers who've really studied Bacon because he, he has this important role in the history, especially the history of uh, sort of science, the scientific method. Um, he was the first one who really thought systematically about that. And what, what is interesting from my point of view, of course, is that he also thought about the sort of obstacles <laughs> to doing science that lie in our psychology. Mm. Uh, so he 's often claimed to have been the first one to talk about confirmation bias, for example, which is interesting, mm. yeah um so definitely a, an important figure,
0: yeah, yeah, and you write a little bit in your most recent book about this confirmation bias, i think
1: yeah, I mean confirmation bias i 'm interested in various psychological mechanisms that sort of come in the way for of rational belief formation. Mm. <laughs> Um, confirmation bias of course is one and it's been studied a lot Um, exactly how damaging it is 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 somewhat uh, complicated actually because Mm. it's not entirely irrational if you have a bunch of beliefs um, to assess evidence in line with the beliefs you already have Uh, that's actually uh, very rational to do that Mm. but um, there are manifestations of confirmation bias um, that that can be harmful mm. where you sort of actively seek out evidence that supports the belief you already have and you uh, actively avoid evidence <laughs> that will go against your beliefs so so there's certainly manifestations of it that can be a problem, mm. and it can also manifest itself on level of perception, what we see and what we don 't see. Um,
0: And all that can come in the way of knowledge. Yeah. I actually supervised some master students yesterday and we had a discussion about this, but uh, where I think it's important to keep this that they need to be able to surprise themselves to be open for finding something that they didn't expect for example so
1: yeah i mean one has to be sort of open on an individual level but one also has to work in a context where other people will challenge you right that's Mm -hmm. an interesting thing there's lots of research on sort of what what can you do to counteract confirmation bias Mm. And the sheer knowledge that you have it doesn't help very much, apparently. Mm. <laughs> mm. However, uh, in a social context, uh, we we do quite well overcoming our confirmation bias because people will challenge our opinions and mm. we will have to defend them. And, you know, then you discover, uh, discover these lacunas in, in your reasoning and so on. Yeah. So that's why this sort of social dimension of science is uh, such an absolutely essential uh, mm. trait of it.
0: Yeah, yeah. And... Um, it's not that common within theoretical philosophy, which is your area of expertise, then to to work across different disciplines. So, why have you chosen to do so?
1: Well, it's not uncommon, um, and I think increasingly so. People uh, work across disciplines. Um, I mean, philosophy is this funny topic, right? Because it is um, it raises all the, it addresses all these foundational questions. Um, that other sciences uh, don't have sort of the time or <laughs> uh, space to, to 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 handle things mm. that have to do with like the nature of knowledge or the nature of the scientific method and all that, and those issues then can be relevant to almost any discipline. So and uh, vice versa, it's often very interesting for us then to get empirical data into how we reason around this. Mm. Um, but then I think whether you choose to, to do d- interdisciplinary work as a f- uh, theoretical philosopher, it depends, of course, on what your e- area of expertise is. Mm. Uh, so it used to be that I did work in philosophy that was quite far removed from empirical sciences, and there wasn't any obvious connections. But mm. now, now I'm doing work on um, knowledge resistance, which mm. is... Uh, such a prime example of a topic that requires interdisciplinary <laughs> research because knowledge resistance is this a phenomenon that um, is sort of caused by the complex interaction of the individual psychology and this so- social environment mm. um, so you need to have both i mean first of all knowledge resistance is a kind of Irrational reaction to evidence. So mm. the philosophy sort of raises all those, uh, discusses or uh, examines all those basic questions that have to do with rationality and nature mm. of evidence, what would be a rational updating of evidence and what's not. Um, but then uh, there are these psychological mechanisms, uh, motivated reasoning being a central one uh, that psychologists <laughs> investigate. Mm. Uh, but that interacts with the uh, external info- information environment. Mm. Uh, and there, therefore we have, I lead this large uh, program um, with about 30 plus researchers from four different dip- disciplines on the nature of knowledge resistance. That's funded by Riksbanken Jubileumsfond. Mm. And in the program, so we have the philosophers, we have the psychologists, we have the media communication uh, experts, uh, because they of course study uh, the flow of information and disinformation <laughs> that surrounds us and how that interacts with our psychological biases such as um, Selective attention and selective exposure related to confirmation bias. Mm. Um, And the fourth discipline that's involved is political science because, of course, a lot of what's going on um, is related to partisanship and um, knowledge resistance. And a prime example of knowledge resistance is tribal thinking, what's also called politically motivated reasoning, Mm. where you hold on to belief because it happens to uh, belong ha- happens to have become a mark of identity of mm. your particular group, your political ideological group mm. um, so when a belief a factual belief i mean you know these are not values factual beliefs um become a mark of identity, you tend to respond in a defensive way if evidence comes in showing that that belief mm. is false mm. and that 's of course connected then to the political environment, so political mm.
0: science plays a role in this too. Yeah. Yes. Um, Still, so I'm a bit curious about you and your choices in your career, because uh, we also are a little group here, reading your early articles and then comparison to your current work. Um, And um, I mean... (laughs) Was it just that you were curious to learn more from these other perspectives? Did you feel that theoretical philosophy was too limited in what you wanted to accomplish? Or what, what was the reason to start to think about knowledge resistance, for example?
1: No, I think it was the path that most research goes: is that you work on one thing, which leads to another thing, which leads mm-hmm. to a third thing. And before you know it, you're doing something else because you're exploring things. Um, so in my case, I had done, like I said before, my my dissertation work and the sort of stuff I did the years after that was quite sort of non-empirical, its own thing having to do with nature of mind and language. Um, but there was also epistemology in there, and epistemology became more and more interesting for me for various reasons. Um, and then, of course, what happened was that in 2016, a very sort of uh, year of political upheavals, when we had the Brexit uh, referendum and the election Donald Trump, I started to get really worried of the situa- the sort of epistemic situation, uh, the crisis of truth that we were mm-hmm. facing. And since I had worked on epistemology for years, I thought it would be natural to to write about that. Uh, mm. So then I became used to this as, uh, sort of stuff that was going on in the world as examples of, of the epistemological challenges. Mm. And before you know it, you start to think about knowledge resistance and then it becomes uh, interdisciplinary. So I think it's that kind of path that most researchers experience themselves where mm. one thing leads to another.
0: Yes, and I read somewhere, I don't know if it was in this book or somewhere else, that um, that you... Became quite uh, emotionally <laughs> invested in this. You were angry, but I, I think that was in your other book. This um, it was my first book, facts. Uh, Alternative Facts, and that's mm. true.
1: Because then, I, at that point, I was just doing my sort of research quietly in a very happy way. But uh, then, then I was angry. I was angry. Mm. Uh, Just seeing this, I mean, and the most sort of triggering event, as it were, Mm -hmm. was after the uh, inauguration of Donald Trump and this Mm -hmm. claim about the audience being the biggest ever and blah, blah, Mm -hmm. which it clearly wasn't. And then his spokesperson went out and said, well, they said, well, that's not the facts. And then she said, the president presents alternative facts. Mm -hmm. Uh, I thought it was most... Uh, <laughs> ridiculous t- term I ever heard, uh, but also kind of dangerous because mm. it sounds as if alternative facts are kind of like facts. Mm. <laughs> They're just mm. alternative ones. Yeah. Of course, there yeah. are no alternative facts. Mm. So I immediately then thought, no, no, this is enough, enough. <laughs> 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 I need to take my epistemological tools and, mm. and write about this and try to sort out what's going on here.
0: Yeah. So emotions are important in direction in everyone's lives and we well, kind of, of act on those emotions.
1: Sure, yeah. emotions are very important. I mean, I am, you know, I write a lot about how emotions can come in the way for knowledge, and that's mm-hmm. true because uh, rational evidence uh, uh responses um uh, when they when emotions interfere there it, you often get irrationalities so that's mm. true so no so emotions aren't so great for knowledge but emotions are essential to our lives of course mm. especially because of the connection with action mm. action requires beliefs but it also requires desires otherwise you would never do anything mm. so emotions do come in uh, most definitely and yeah. sometimes there is this sort of parodic description of me as someone who's against emotions of course I'm not <laughs> that's ridiculous yeah. however
0: emotions. Cause trouble when it comes to uh, belief formation. Mm. Yeah, and also then you spoke about identity work and how it's linked to group identities and so on. But that is so strong for the human, um, and it seems then as if this to reason is not as strong for the human.
1: Right? I don't. No, I think that's wrong, and I mm-hmm. think we we're, we're being fed. We have a sort of one-sided diet of examples from, from psychology and political psychology of how irrational people are. Mm-hmm. So, and those are spectacular and they're interesting. And sometimes you wonder who, why, how can this be happening? But you then forget all the humdrum daily rationality that permeates our lives. Uh, like, you know, how you get from home to work in the morning. That, it requires tons of rationality and tons of knowledge. And we just do that without reflecting. Then there are these spectacular failures. But I think we really forget that we are through and through rational beings mm.
0: who occasionally fa- fail in interesting ways. Mm. Yeah: And uh, I mentioned that we had this reading group, which was very helpful in preparing for this uh, talk, actually. And we wondered a little bit together uh, about your work also uh, in the Nobel um, Prize. You assess the Nobel Prize in Literature, so you're in the Swedish Academy on uh, chair number seven. And um, uh, do you bring any specific method with you during your reading and evaluation and collective discussions uh, at the Swedish Academy?
1: Well, first of all, I mean, the Swe- yes, I am a member of the Swedish Academy. I'm not a member of the Nobel Committee. We have a Nobel Committee that uh, is devoted to. Uh, reading and reading and reading throughout mm-hmm. the year and selecting a list that we in the end sort of uh, go through carefully. Uh, the Swedish Academy uh, does hand out the Nobel Prize but it's just one of very many things that it does. So it's uh, important to remember that. Uh, internationally what people know is the Nobel Prize. But we have meetings every week where we hand out prizes and stipends to uh, authors um, uh, writers of various sorts, journalists to, and to uh, uh, researchers uh, in language Swedish language area because that's also and uh, Swedish literature so we have we're very busy doing all sorts of other things outreach and and supporting the Swedish language and uh, being involved with these uh, dictionaries that we've been doing for a long time so there's lots and lots of work that doesn't have to do with the Nobel Prize mm. uh, so me I'm I'm not uh, I, I read the the sort of final selection of the Nobel Committee uh, over the summer, and then I'm part of the discussions. Mm. I did start out my academic career by studying uh, uh, literature at the Mm. university, Literaturvetenskap, as they call Mm. it. Uh, so I'm I'm not completely <laughs> ignorant of the area. And I've always been reading a lot. And I can, I think, as a philosopher, contribute. Um, I'm a good uh, reasoner. <laughs> I think that's good. And you have a collection of 18 people who need to discuss in a good and sort of fruitful way. I think it's good to have someone who's a good reasoner and um, can turn, you know, arguments back and forth and around. Because so even in aesthetic matters, there is reasoning going on. Mm. And it better be good and not just strong opinions without arguments. Yeah. yeah. So, so I think I contribute in that way, that I am yes. a good reasoner. And that is a contribution, of course, to everything we do.
0: Mm. Yeah. With an interest in the nature of knowledge, and how it is communicated and resisted, Orsa has investigated the main contemporary threats to democracy. Except for authoritarian figures who use violence, she is interested in other threats to democracy, for example those that are grounded in the human itself, with its potential erroneous emotional decision-making that is animated and amplified by social media. Do you think is that it has changed with digitalization uh, this problem with emotions that we talked about briefly? Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, that's not my personal view. <laughs> There's lots of research showing this. I mean, uh, the new <coughs> technology has transformed um, a rather well-established media landscape in 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 principle uh, overnight, in practice overnight, because we had the w- w- and this is an, another example of how your interest leads from one thing to another because I was interested in knowledge resistance and these emotional uh, ob- obstacles to to uh, uh, rational reasoning. And then I was seeing the consequences of what's going on for, for democracy being very harmful. So what, what's been happening, of course, is that during the uh, 20th century when democracy, modern democracy, grew strong, we also had... Uh, uh, Information environment that that grew increasingly good and strong we had free media when 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 newspapers started in the nineteenth century they were not very reliable or very good, but we sort of through the decades we got a fairly well functioning information system then that was basically thrown out overnight mm. because of the digital technology and it had several consequences. one of course is that it 's now uh, incredibly cheap and easy for anyone to produce. Anything And reach out globally. So it's such an amazing tool for propagandists and disinformation sources. Um, but it's also, it's not just all these uh, producers that can cook up whatever. <laughs> it's also the fact how it's spread, namely through us on social media. Uh, so very much of uh, i mean when it first started before social media if you remember we had to get, like go in and google and find a website to find information it's not how it goes anymore it's mm-hmm. goes through social media mm-hmm. and we so it's we sharing things liking things commenting things that spread stuff good stuff and bad stuff <laughs>
0: right mm-hmm. it's all yeah. mixed and is it more a platform for emotional expression than expression or reason
1: there? No, it can be both, but it's certainly a platform that encourages emotional expression in in a a couple of ways. One, of course, has to do with the algorithms that we've heard so much about. Where they are, the point of them is to feed you content that keeps you on the platform because that's good for advertisement uh, income. And what keeps you on a platform? Well, stuff that's emotionally engaging, uh, and that's not necessarily the stuff that's most uh, <laughs> reliable or mm. uh, uh, true. Um, and also, stu- and emotional engagement often also means bad emotions, anger, uh, fear, things like that. That keeps you on the platform. So the mm. algorithms feed stuff like that um, and amplify it. So, it's, uh, so that's one dimension of it. And the other, of course, is the design that was clever. You know, there was these emojis and things that seemed kind of harmless at first, but they—we know—they affect our emotional systems terribly. If you don't get many likes on something, <laughs> you feel bad, mm. <laughs> right? So you try to share things that your friends will like, and that tends to be this emotional sensational, and so on. So there are lots of components in this that brings out our uh, our emotions in ways that—I uh, mean, there was nothing like it before in the world, other mm. than sitting on a bench and gossiping with your friends
0: Mm. (laughs) Uh, and now we do that globally Um. Mm. so reason is also threatened then by these platforms in a way where where can reason live and (laughs) how and (laughs) Yeah, I mean, reason has a
1: hard time I would say on these platforms. I mean, but at the same time, of course, we know, uh I mean, this is this sort of dual quality of what we're in now is that it's also an amazing source of knowledge, <laughs> the internet, right? So, uh and it can be an amazing source also for uh, interaction and conversations uh, where you so as researchers, I mean, I think being a researcher in like a corner of Northern Europe as we are <laughs> is infinitely easier <laughs> today than it was before but we can, because we can really be part of the global research uh, conversation all mm-hmm. the time thanks mm-hmm. to the new technology. Mm-hmm. So it's very uh, it's very dual. There is all that good stuff and there is all that bad stuff. And we have to remember we're in the infancy of this technology. For us, it seems like an eternity, but it's f- Know, 10, 15 years that we've had this combination of digital media and social media. Mm. And uh, we still don't know how to handle it. We still don't know mm. how to turn this into something that's really good for knowledge and good for democracy. Mm. And we're just figuring it out. And I think um, now there's new legislation coming out of EU on, on about the platforms. There will be leg- legislation. There will be things that will make this work better. Mm. But right now, it's not working really well.
0: No. And currently, there's an ongoing war in Europe, in Ukraine. And we can see that it's also an information war uh, and uh, digital tools are kind of played out uh, against each other. So what do you think is the key for us to understand in relation to, to that war?
1: Yeah, I mean, that it is, of course, an information war that's been going on for a very long time. I mean, uh, Putin has worked quite efficiently through his uh, troll uh, factories and so on. Uh, to produce disinformation to weaken the Western democracies. This goes way back. I mean, in an authoritarian state, you have two types of efforts. One is to uh, use disinformation to keep your own population content, despite the fact that your politics uh, causes all sorts of failures in society. You know, poor health care and poverty and dysfunctional economy, all that stuff that comes with the authoritarian state. So you need to keep people happy internally by not telling them how things really are. Um, uh, and 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 of course, if things are really bad at home, you can always start a war because that will distract them. Right? So this there's lots of evidence showing that this is what authoritarian states do. Democracies don't start wars against other democracies. Authoritarian states do that all the time. It's a distraction thing. Um, Now, But the other kind of propaganda or disinformation campaigns you see in authoritarian states is directed at other uh, countries and especially at democracies, because democracies pose an obstacle to the authoritarian state in all sorts of ways. Democracies want to collaborate. (laughs) They want international agreements, rule of law. Uh, Democracies have free journalism and research. They can expose what's going on in your dysfunctional country and so on. So uh, And right now, what's really going on, this I think we have to really pay attention to. I mean, of course, there's all sorts of disinformation about how the war is going. And um, uh, there I think that Putin is losing that uh, information uh, situation because there's just so much knowledge coming out uh, of the Ukraine about what's going on. Uh, But the other kind of disinformation that will be happening, it has been happening for a long time, but it will increase now, is, I think, efforts to make the West, uh, Western democracies, uh, weaken in various ways. First, to cause disagreement among, among the countries in the EU, for example, or bet- between the EU and the US, because it's a unity right now that is a very big problem for Putin. So that you can do in various ways but one thing you can do of course is cause trouble internally for the various countries in in the EU. We are going to see an energy crisis with very expensive gas prices. We already see it. It might be getting much worse than it is. We will have the Im- enormous uh, amounts of uh, refugees coming to countries. And now everybody's very generous and really trying to help. But this might be for a long time. And how much stamina will there be in the population for incredibly high gas prices and lots of refugees? That can be used to try to weaken the democracies and weaken their resolve to, to resist Putin. Mm. So I think we... And, and there are some well-tried tools for, for weakening a democracy. Uh, for example, trying to increase disagreement and polarisation in the country. And that you can do in various ways. And this is what Putin has been doing in Russia with, with great success. Mm. I mean sorry, in the US with great success. Mm. Um, and also try to use conspiracy theories to make people lose trust in the democratic institutions.
0: Also well-tried tool.
1: Mm. Um, so yeah. we will see a lot of this. Yeah.
0: So on the one hand, uh, the problem is that people believe too easily what they see. But there is also this discussion that no one is believing anything—a uh, sort of skepticism. But do you think uh, is this more academic and philosophic, philosophical skepticism on <laughs> also <laughs> on the retreat, so to say? <laughs> But, um. Well, I mean, philosophical skepticism
1: is its own history. <laughs> it's mm. been around since antiquity, and it will always be around. What's it's What's interesting about it is, I think, is that it sort of tells you, explores the ways in which you can sow doubt, in which you can sow doubt on things that seem plausibly true, mm. and and you find these. Ways that sort of are theoretically explored by philosophical skeptics because they want to, they're interested in finding out if there is something we know with certainty. But these ways of throwing, uh, sowing doubt, they can they can be used for these propaganda purposes, and it is used for those purposes because all you need to do to stop people from receiving knowledge is to sow some doubt. You don't have to get them to believe something that's false. You just have to stop them from believing something that's true. Mm. So that's what someone like Donald Trump does when he says, talks about New York Times and so on as fake media mm. and accuse them for, of, of uh, uh, producing fake news. He doesn't have to tell people that everything that's in the New York Times uh, is false or the opposite. He just has to get people to doubt what's in there. Uh, to prevent to prevent them from believing th- things about Trump, for example, because the New York Times will will tell you bad things about Trump, mm. um, and and this is also a way authoritarian have s- states have worked that you just undermine trust in science and trust in uh, traditional media and and trust in the sort of institutions of democracy that can do
0: tremendous harm without mm. even getting people to have false beliefs. Yeah. Still, you convinced that. Uh, the philosophical skepticism as we engage with uh, in the universities and academia, I hope in, in many places in, in the world, will stay. You are sure
1: about oh, that? Yeah, but philosophical skepticism is just a part of <laughs> the history of epistemology It will always be there. Mm. Uh, yeah. mm. Mm. and that's fine, that's good it's a way of sort of really trying to figure out uh, what we know, what we don't how does evidence work What what is uh, plausible um, underminers of evidence and so on
0: mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. to limit the threats to democracy novel methods can be developed where also has been leading a research project where psychologists deployed experiments which showed how to counteract knowledge resistance she has also been part of a project targeting the Swedish education system engaging in novel methods on how to foster responsible democratic citizens can you perhaps uh... Give us some insight into the practical solutions that you think are important in the protection of democracy.
1: Well, I mean, what you were talking about here now is sort of individual level (laughs) things one can do to counteract knowledge resistance, for example, to get people to accept knowledge. Um, And there's quite a bit of research there, and my program is doing research on it too. And uh, looking at the individual level, uh, it, it, a lot of it has to do with handling the emotions that come in the way of, of knowledge, uh, making people feel good about themselves, making them feel respected. So There's research on climate deniers who resist the evidence about climate change, but if you make them feel good about themselves, they're more willing to accept their evidence and so on. The question when it comes to all these individual kind of intervention, individual level interventions, is always how can you scale that up? What can you do on a level of society? Um, I think one thing that's quite clear is that in a society where you get increased uh, emotional, effective uh, polarization, you will get more knowledge resistance because once you get this very strong tribalism going, uh, us and them thinking then it's very likely that the, the knowledge resistance will kick in because then you get this identification being very strong with a group and then certain beliefs being very strong marks of identity for that group and then so on. So on a societal level, it's very much a question of how do we keep the sort of emotional polarization low? Mm. And there, the trick is not so much to go in on an individual level. There, the trick is uh, it very much depends on what the what what the political scientists call the elite actors do, and by that they mean uh, opinion leaders of various sorts, uh, polit- polit- politicians obviously, but other kinds of opinion leaders as well. Because if they become very polarizing, if they describe their political opponents as enemies or as morally corrupt, which Donald Trump was very good at doing. Mm. Then they will cause emotional polarization that sort of seeps down into the population. Mm. So when it comes to polarization, which is connected to knowledge resistance, it's very, very important how this sort of that level of discourse looks. Mm. Politicians have a very big responsibility to not, not go that way, even if they will win them votes, because mm. they will.
0: Mm. Mm. Okay, yeah, so, so kind of controlling emotions. In some way, could be a solution, but well, on a societal then, uh, level, yeah, yeah, and then to start with politicians controlling their own <laughs> emotions too, wanting others, yeah, emotions and to not and, exploit
1: um, emotions mm. for political gains in the in this very harmful way. Now there will always be some uh, element of using emotions for political gains. Mm. That's politics, mm. but mm. but using it in this very destructive way is 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 is, is very dangerous, mm.
0: but. Yeah, m- because I, I really do want to think performatively about this. In a sense, that it seems that emotions now then are channeled so much; mm-hmm. they are seen as a resource rather than yeah. just the human is emotional yeah. and the human is rawness. Huh? So, um, so this will to channel it in in different directions. And uh, wh- where do you think that comes from then? Because uh, <sighs> I mean what what is the core problem here? We can't take away emotions it It won't be no, I mean, like I said, I think
1: a lot of it is it's contingent upon what kind of politicians pop up a little bit mm-hmm. right, but mm-hmm. now they also have the tools to channel and exploit
0: emotions through social media mm-hmm.
1: right mm-hmm. which uh, Trump did so skillfully you know on Twitter and so on
0: mm-hmm. uh, yeah. So this project, for example, where you uh, have worked a bit with the Swedish education system, I think it's gymnasium. Your book was to be sent to some oh, gymnasium Oh, I see what schools. you're talking about. No, yeah? it's
1: not really a project. No. Uh, but, um, no, no, but my first book, Alternative Facts, I have a chapter about the schools, the role mm. of knowledge in the schools. Mm. Because, of course... Um, if knowledge is important, and if it's important to society, the the prime sort of <laughs> platform <laughs> mm. for knowledge uh, is is the public school system. So it's yeah. really, really important that yeah, that works. So, so
0: I was kind of wondering, so is it that we need to teach then pupils about how they act on their emotions and that they should be more reflective about their emotions? And that's a way, a practical way to, to teach them to channel it? Because I think... Uh, this to think that we can wish for politicians who have this consideration is hard. It's more that we could work. I mean, that's our job in universities mm. too. Or
1: no, I don't mm. think so, actually. No? I think it's the other way around. I think okay. we should be really holding politicians and opinion leaders responsible mm-hmm. who, who do this. It's easier to do that okay. than to honor. I mean, God knows how i don 't even know what the sort of scientific evidence would be that you can teach kids uh, this in the schools and how you would do that. What I do think we need to teach the kids uh, are a couple of things. first of all, we need to teach them <laughs> We need to <laughs> transfer knowledge and that 's why wh- one thing my chapter in, in alternative facts on the schools is rather uh, angry chapter because it 's about the fact that in the Swedish school system, but not just in Sweden, I know this is something across Western Europe there's for decades now been a very kind of adverse view of of uh, knowledge uh, transferring knowledge in the schools it, there's been the idea that now we shouldn't tell the students how things are they should go out and figure it out for themselves and so it's a terrible idea um and they've been talking about oh we should just train them in critical thinking we shouldn't you know throw a bunch of facts on them well you know you can't do critical thinking without factual knowledge. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So they hang together. So that's why I'm very, very critical of how how things have been uh, done in the Swedish schools and a lot of the Western Europe. Um, so Do that you also
0: have uh, that part in this current research project you're doing? No. You, that's not involved in there. No, no that's not
1: involved, mm. although, of course, critical uh, thinking it kind of comes in. But the school, uh, mm. how to sort of apply that in the schools, no, that's not part of mm. this project. Mm. Uh, however, my book, of course, uh, was handed out to, uh, what is it now, sixty, seventy thousand 70,000 pupils in the Swedish uh, school system in the last year of high school. Uh, so, uh, I know teachers uh, have been getting lots of emails from them who have been using uh, alternative facts in the schools. Mm. Um, not necessarily the chapter on the school system, but you have mm. uh, two chapters that uh, are quite relevant on critical thinking there that they've been using. Mm.
0: Mm. Yeah, but somehow then, um, you know, it, reading your works, it seems that you emphasize knowledge then linked to certain content, like facts. You say that you have to have facts to do critical thinking, whilst i think i would see them connected uh, like a process of learning or so but um do you think you know that there are other ways of engaging to protect democracy than just through this focus on knowledge and i know that in this talk i tried to focus more on the emotions like so so you can see that You want more facts and fact-based, and I wonder, is that really the right way? If we then are so emotional, and if the emotions are channeled, shouldn't we work more with the emotional than with the facts?
1: Look, they hang together, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, if you have a lot of false beliefs about your political opponents, you might be very angry at them. (laughs) <laughs> right, so they hang together so it's not that simple mm. uh, so I think of course you have to work with both things I, I just don't know how you would teach kids to handle their emotions better in the schools because I'm not do, do, I am not don't do research on that mm. uh, what I do think and I say that to, this to teachers because I um, talk to teachers a lot they should teach the kids to have a good discussion um, and that they don't do in the schools I think that is to say, they should teach the kids the art of disagreement. Now, mm-hmm. democracy presupposes democracy always involves disagreement. Different kinds of disagreement: disagreement on the facts. That's okay; we can handle that because it will sort itself out over time. We get the evidence; it sorts itself out. But there is also disagreement on values in a democracy, and that's uh, there is no nothing you can do to g- make that go away. However much we argue, there will be disagreement on values and that's fine we should just accept that we will have to live with that within the confines of the basic fundamental democratic values we allow a kind of pluralism when it comes to values we d- we think you know we disagree we have different views of the good society of the good life that's okay and i think it's really important to teach the kids first of all factual disagreements How to sort of overcome that? Well, you look for evidence and arguments. And when the evidence is strong, you change your belief. And that's fine. It's not at all uh, a defeat to change your beliefs. It's a a progress because you're getting closer to knowledge. That they should teach the kids. But the other thing they need to teach the kids too is how to discuss values and accept that people have different values and live with that. Mm, Uh, mm. And that, I think, that's connected with this very... Issue about toxic polarization again, mm. uh, which is precisely a, a failure to accept value disagreement, mm. to find uh, it unacceptable that the other side has other values and therefore describe the al- other side as morally corrupt and, and mm. an enemy.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, but uh, because when you were exemplifying what's happening in the Swedish schools, I was just thinking that, yeah, it sounds like they are trying to put all the responsibility on the individual to be in control of their thoughts and it and i don't mean uh, you said to me like um how to say you didn't know how one could teach someone to control their emotions and and maybe i don't mean that they should be controlled but more accepted and I, i'm sure you agree so it's yeah. not like yeah that. I, I agree but yeah. i'm so i'm just thinking that it sounds as if the the autonomy of the individuals is quite strong in the swedish education system then that this responsibility is really put on the individual and then you given give them tools that they can mobilize themselves and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't work
1: basically. yeah i mean that's the pedagogy right i mm-hmm. mean i don't know about autonomy but a lot of it go is about you know, instead of giving them a book where they learn some things and answer some mm-hmm. questions, they're asked to do a project on something, and they're not even told what sources to use. They go out and mm-hmm. Google, and they find God knows what—more <laughs> or less reliable stuff—that mm-hmm. is too hard for them or too easy for them. It's really a, a, an impossible task they're given there, mm-hmm. um, and and that kind of pedagogy is grounded, I think. Well, I know because they argue that way in sort of philosophical assumptions about um uh, factual knowledge not being important and the important thing being critical thinking and uh, we're not even sure that there are any truths or any facts and all that kind of thing uh, which i think is really really
0: harmful mm. uh, so so it's like not what we would see as academic enough huh? and but then when they come to university for sure there must be a, a different practice of, well, of course. doing this
1: yeah i mean i mean that's the point you you can eventually uh, you know, you, work, you do work the way, the, mm. that way. You go yeah. out and find your own knowledge when you become a researcher. Mm. Uh, but you don't do that when you're 7 or 10 or 15, for that matter. First, you need to learn things, mm. right? Then you can go out and find. And with age, of course, increasingly in the schools, you can give them more independence, and one should do that. Mm. But they need to also learn the basics to, to be able to... To, to find their own knowledge. And I think it's a bit ridiculous because everything in the schools is called research. They're supposed to do research. They don't do re- research when they Google around randomly. Yeah,
0: yes. Um. But... So let's uh, finish this with some comment on what you see in the students that come to you when you teach them. I mean, in a sense, uh, it sounds a bit too (laughs) hopeless here. um, Because I'm very impressed with our students and how serious they are about trying to do things in a scientific way. And so um, it still seems as if they have learned something, at least those who choose university. So what's your opinion on that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I uh, we have um, some wonderful students, um, absolutely, and who are very curious and scientifically minded, absolutely. Um, but I do feel that the, they have poorer tools than they used to have. They have a hard time writing, and they have a hard time reading thick texts. And that is not a good development. I don't know if maybe you see it less in the sciences, but in the humanities where you really do need to read a lot of thick books and, and write a lot... Uh, they struggle increasingly with language, and that's not their fault. They are intelligent. It's not their fault. It's because they haven't had the training properly in the schools.
0: Mm. Yeah. And how do you meet that in the classroom? What do you do? How do you?
1: It's really hard. I mean, I find increasingly that supervision time is going to la- helping them with the language, mm. and it's not really what we're supposed to do. Um, I know the university is trying to provide some support s- services for for people who really have a hard time writing, but um, it's It's really hard, it's too late in a way, right? That should have been done much earlier. Mm.
0: Well, on a positive note, I really enjoyed reading the uh, your book, Why Democracy: Without Question Mark, um, written together also in conversation with your brother. And I guess that book can be something uh, to send out to other high school pupils in the future. So I just want to thank you so much for coming here uh, today, and it's been lovely to talk.